Hi, Martin Van Banen here. If you enjoyed Black Hands, I think you might enjoy another true crime podcast from Stuff. Hosted by my colleague Michael Wright, it's called The Trial. It's about a case I covered in court, a fascinating murder case which went to trial even though there was no weapon or body. After a hung jury and a retrial, The Trial podcast is back with a verdict. Find the feed for The Trial and follow the show to get instant access to the whole series. But for now, here's a sample for you as we return to court for the retrial of David Bimbo. Right, thank you very much, members of the jury. Um, Let's have the Crown charge notice distributed to the jury, please. Right, thank you, Madam Richard. Please uh, reign, Mr Bimbo. David Charles Bimbo, you are charged that on 22 May 2017 at Christchurch murdered Michael McGrath. How do you plead, guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Members of the jury, the defendant David Charles Bimbo has been charged that on 22 May 2017 at Christchurch he murdered Michael Craig McGrath, and to this charge he has pleaded not guilty. Your duty is to decide whether he is guilty or not guilty of this charge. To do this, you must listen to the evidence and give your verdict. From Stuff, this is The Trial. I'm Michael Wright. In May 2017, Michael McGrath, a 49-year-old builder from Christchurch, disappeared almost without trace. His longtime friend, David Benbow, was later arrested and charged with his murder. Benbow pleaded not guilty and, in early 2023, stood trial. The jury in that case couldn't reach a verdict, so, in late 2023, David Benbow stood trial again. This is episode 7, the retrial of David Benbow. It's been a few months, but welcome back. You might remember at the end of our last episode, I said the retrial was scheduled for August. That's indeed when it started, on August 21st, in courtroom 12 in the High Court at Christchurch. As in the first trial, we recorded hundreds of hours of evidence from dozens of witnesses. We pored over the transcripts to work out how both cases, the Crown and Defence, had changed since the end of trial one. What we learnt is that much of the evidence was the same. Here, for example, is Prosecutor Claire Bosher opening the Crown case in the first trial. I would like to annihilate him. Those are the words used by the defendant in this trial. Mr. David Benbow. And here she is in the second. I would like to annihilate him. Those are the words used by the defendant in this trial, Mr. David Benbow. The openings weren't identical. The second one was a bit more concise and coherent, but you get the picture. So this episode, we're going to summarise the key evidence and point out some things that changed, because this retrial was a sequel, not a rerun. Some things did change and a new jury of 12 people would again consider whether David Benbow was guilty or not guilty of the murder of Michael McGrath. So members of the jury, uh, we now move on to the next stage of the trial, which is my opening remarks. 
to you. Um, as I said this morning, it'll probably take about 45 or 50 minutes. But I think the retrial began, as I said, on August 21st, 2023, just over four months after Benbow's first trial ended. It was held in the same courtroom with the same judge and most of the same lawyers. Only Mark Corlett, KC, lead defence counsel in the first trial, was absent. Kirsten Gray would be the main advocate for Benbow this time. This morning, my name's Justice Jonathan Eaton, and I'm the judge who presides over the trial. Things got off to a stuttering start. It took three days to pick a jury, and Justice Eaton had to deliver his opening instructions twice, which was kind of surreal to watch. But you quickly realise that's one of the quirks of a retrial. Everybody acknowledges that it's a go-around all the time. They talk about what happened last time and what's going to happen this time. Here's Justice Eaton from his opening remarks at the very start of the trial to the entire jury pool. Some of you will, of course, be aware that Mr Bembo faced a trial on this charge much earlier this year, back in February. The jury in that case did not return a verdict, and so, as normally happens, a retrial has been convened, and this is that retrial. The judge even talked about how big of a deal the case was. There was quite a bit of publicity around the first trial, just as this morning we have television cameras uh, to my right at the front of the court, there were television cameras then. The trial was a feature on national news uh, from time to time, both on television, on radio, online reporting and in hard copy press. And we got to mention. There has also been a six-episode podcast published about the case. If you have listened to the podcast, then I ask that you alert the court attendant to that fact uh, if your name is called, and I'll speak with you directly and privately and have a discussion as to whether it is proper for you to sit as a juror. Turns out this was nobody, which the judge made a point of mentioning at the end of that day, and which drew heartier laughter from the bar than I would have liked, but them's the breaks. The reason the judge singled us out was because jurors have to come to a case with an open mind. If they'd listened to the trial, the podcast that is, they would have had a lot of information about the case. This wouldn't preclude them from sitting, but the judge needed to be satisfied they could put what they knew out of their mind. Because... The evidence in this trial will not be exactly the same as the evidence in the first trial. There will be evidence that was called in the first trial that will not be evidence called in this trial. There will be evidence called in this trial that was not called in the first trial. So whatever has previously been reported in the media, online in a podcast or on the television or radio, will not reflect the evidence that the jury who hears this retrial will hear. So let's look at some of that new evidence. To be clear, we're not covering all the evidence that was heard in the retrial, or even all of the new evidence. We're going to focus on three key areas, all of which you should remember from the last trial, and what changed in those areas of evidence. First, arguably the most important witness in the case, Stephen Robinson. He was the Littleton port worker who said he saw two men who looked like David Benbow and Michael McGrath talking on Candy's Road about 9am on May the 22nd, 2017. Remember, Benbow had asked McGrath to come around that morning and help him move some railway sleepers in his yard. The Crown claimed this was a ruse to allow Benbow to kill McGrath, but Benbow told police that McGrath never showed that day 
If Robinson indeed saw the two men together that morning, that would support the Crown murder theory and mean that Benbow was lying. So his testimony was crucial. Um, Mr Robinson, good morning. Good morning. Tell the court your phone name, please. Um, Stephen John Robinson. The thrust of Robinson's testimony was the same. He'd finished work at Littleton Port about 8.30 on that Monday morning and headed for his home in Rolleston, a town on the southwest edge of Christchurch. His route home took him along the foot of the Port Hills, through Hallswell and down Candy's Road. I just noticed two men talking. One was wearing like a red T-shirt with uh, a black thermal underneath and blue jeans. He was like slim build, blondish hair. And another man with a darker jumper on, maybe black or navy blue, darker, heavier set fellow. He was at his back to me and the car was parked down near the junction. Okay. That's Robinson, his voice distorted by court order, describing what he saw. Pretty much the same as the first trial. Two men who appeared to fit the descriptions of McGrath and Benbow on Candy's Road. There was a blue station wagon parked nearby, Robinson said, possibly a Subaru, like the one McGrath drove. The difference was the details around this testimony. Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes questioned Robinson a lot more than he did in the first trial. In particular, there were a number of exchanges like this. Now, you've said that the number of ropes depends on, I think you said the weather. The weather conditions, all kinds of things, yeah. Does it also depend on the size of the ship? Oh, yes, yeah. And does the number of people involved depend, again, on the, the ship too? Yes, yeah. Depending on which wharf it is as well sometimes. Robinson worked at Littleton Port as a lines supervisor. That means he was in charge of a crew responsible for tying up a ship when it came into port, which is what he's talking about here. Now, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with what Stephen Robinson did or did not see on Candy's Road? Well, nothing really. But like last time, Stephen Robinson's testimony came down to timing. As in, did he leave work at Littleton early enough to get to Candy's Road by about 9am to see whatever it was he saw. This question would hinge on a ship called the San Granite, a fishing trawler that docked in Littleton Harbour that morning, May 22, 2017, and which Robinson's crew was responsible for tying up. So the jury got to hear more information than they probably ever thought they would hear about this ship. Specifically, how long it took to tie up, what was involved in tying it up, how did the people responsible for tying it up get to the dock, and what was the process for leaving once the job was done. Some of the detail was excruciating. The jury was shown an interminable video of the sand granite docking at a different harbour for context, and the Crown called a host of new witnesses to support Robinson's evidence. There was the other line supervisor he worked with that morning. Normally, Steve Robinson drove the truck, because actually he was a better driver than me. I looked after the pilot car, because the pilot's got to get off the ship, obviously. The there was the pilot, who boards the ship once it gets close to port and manoeuvres it into the wharf. The standard passage plan would be me getting on board the vessel, doing about uh, seven or eight knots, um, then coming up the harbour. Um, and there was the marine administrator who was in charge of things like allocating a ship to a berth when it came into port. The pilot was expected on board at 07.30 in the morning. Um, Jamie indicated that he boarded at 07.30. 
and it was all fast birth at 08.31. That's a lightning-fast summary, but hopefully you get the picture. A lot of time was spent talking about tying up this ship. When all the new port witnesses were finally done, Justice Eaton said, with a hint of relief... All right, uh, I think that's the end of the Little Import Company. Um, so we'll move on to a new topic tomorrow. And the prosecutors gave their best good one, Your Honour, grins. This is what passes for a zinger in court. The evidence from those new witnesses came down to a few key points. First, you heard the Marine Administrator just then give an important detail. All fast at the berth at 0831. That meant the sand granite was all tied up by 8.31am, Stephen Robinson's job was done and, because it was the end of his shift, he could go home. Second, there was no definitive record of when Robinson, having finished tying up the sand granite, actually left work. The head of security at Littleton Port testified that while the gate to the wharf required staff to swipe in, they could leave restricted areas without using their card. They could push a button to open the gate, or if they were driving, there was a ground sensor that their vehicle could activate and open the gate that way. So the question became, how quickly or not did Stephen Robinson leave work? So once you've finished tying up the ship, what did you do? I just went um, back round to the, our office, put my gear away and went home. What would you do when you got back to the, the office? Well, if it had been the last ship of the day, I would have just had my jacket and life jacket on and my helmet and my radio. I'd just put them in my locker, put my um, radio on charge and go home. Put my radio on charge and go home. Robinson said this would have taken a few minutes tops. It was the last day of a four-day stretch, so he would have been keen to get out of there. The defence focused on the vagaries in Robinson's story. He approached police several months after McGrath disappeared, and early on he was a lot hazier about the time and even the day he saw what he saw. It wasn't until he was interviewed by investigators that he started to narrow down the time frame, and it wasn't until the first trial that he finally pinpointed 9am as the time on the Monday that he saw the two men on Candy's Road. In cross-examination, Defence Counsel Kirsten Gray went over this again with Robinson. But she also picked apart the new evidence about the sand granite, exactly what Robinson would have done after the trawler was tied up and how that might have prevented him from getting to Candy's Road by nine. You might remember from the first trial, investigators found footage of what they believed could have been Robinson's car, a white Toyota Alex hatchback, captured on CCTV near Candy's Road at 8.59am. Littleton Port to Candy's Road is at least a 20 or 25 minute drive, so there wasn't much wiggle room. If, for example, Robinson had waited a few minutes after 8.30 for the pilot to disembark the sand granite, as he initially told police he always did, that mattered. Here's Gray cross-examining Robinson. We always wait for the pilot to come off. Correct? Most of the time, yes. Well, no. Yes, that's what I said. What did you say to Detective... I, I, I'm not, I don't want to be asking well, you, but I just... Well, when we, I'm, well they normally wait at them because um, it takes that long to get on the tankers and things. Your evidence 
today, as I understood it, was that you wouldn't have waited for the pilot? I don't think we would. No, I don't think I did. Don't think you did? I, I'm sure we didn't. You're sure you didn't? Basically, Gray put to Robinson, in order to make it to Candy's Road by 9am, he would have to have finished tying up the sand granite and left work immediately. Not waiting for the pilot or doing any of the other things he often did. And isn't it another thing that would be required for you to get to Trice's Road would be not waiting for the pilot to get off the ship? As it would be. Yep. Not chatting to Malcolm? Yes. Not looking at the computer? Yes. Yep. Not yarning to the tug men? Because you've got you've got to make haste, don't you? Oh, I did, yeah. Yeah. So the question of what port worker Stephen Robinson saw and when he saw it was more litigated than last time and just as contested. Exceptionally riveting and shocking at the same time. Gone fishing. A man disappears and a woman goes to prison for 15 years for his murder, despite swearing she'd never even met him. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Gone Fishing. The two sides also resumed hostilities over the CCTV evidence used to identify vehicles. The footage of what might have been Robinson's Toyota that I mentioned earlier, it was low quality. The prosecution got around this by stressing that their expert's opinion was just that, an opinion it was possible that the vehicle in the footage was Stephen Robinson's Toyota. No more than that. The defence disputed even that much. Its expert, David Horsburgh, said the footage quality wasn't good enough to even suggest it might be Robinson's car. His argument rested on the identifiers on the vehicle. Everything that was discernible in the footage was what's known as class characteristics, Horsburgh said. It might identify the vehicle as, say, a Toyota Alex, but not specifically Stephen Robinson's Toyota Alex. Horsburgh also identified several more of these characteristics on top of what the Crown experts found, including, significantly, a possible black body stripe on the doors, which Robinson's car didn't have. Horsburgh had been pretty certain about this black stripe at the first trial, Here's what he said then when asked by Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes. So in reality, what colour line would that be on the car? Are you able to say from, from that image? In reality on the car, it would be a black body stripe in my opinion. But testifying a second time, Horsburgh softened a bit. Now he said he was prepared to accept the apparent black stripe might have been an artefact. An artefact is an aberration in a video image. We don't need to get into the details, but basically it's created when data in an image compresses, making it look like there's something there that isn't. At the second trial, Horsburgh said he was open-minded about the black stripe being an artefact. He had modified his position, he said, after hearing evidence to this end at the first trial from a Crown video expert, Senior Constable Ian Pearson. When I heard the evidence of Senior Constable Pearson at the first trial, I did substantial research into artefacts. Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes picked up on this point. As a Crown witness, 
Pearson gave evidence before Horsburgh at the first trial. So why didn't the artefact testimony influence Horsburgh's position back then? This exchange runs for a while. And so you've just said that it was his evidence that led you to that view, that it was an artefact, or it could be an artefact? It led me to the view that I had to do further research into the issue of artefacts. All right, so when did you do that research? I've done that research through May, June and July of this year, sir. So that's after you gave evidence at the first trial? That is correct, sir, yes. And you were on oath? Yes, sir, I was. And you were giving evidence as an expert witness? Yes, sir, I was. And you know the obligations on expert witnesses? Very well, sir. Right. Because at the first trial, you said that there was a black body stripe on that car. Yes, sir. As a matter of fact. Yes, sir, I did. Right, so you're wrong about that? No, sir. I'm saying I cannot exclude the possibility that it is an artefact. There is still clear evidence that there is a black line across that vehicle on many of the frames. So I am open-minded, but I'm big enough to accept the fact that there are other experts who might have differing views, and I take those views into account. And this issue of artefacts and the potential for that to be an artefact, this, this black line, you didn't mention artefacts at all in your first report, did you? No, I did not. Did you know what an artefact was in your first report? I've had experience of artefacts for many years, sir, yes. So why did you have to do all this research about them? Because, sir, I, I probably spend 40 to 45 hours a week researching all sorts of things in relation to my role. And you are always gaining more knowledge and further informing yourself on various things. You don't just end up with, I'm an expert and I don't need to consider any further evidence or any further views or opinions. You're forever informing yourself and making yourself potentially a better witness. But you didn't consider this issue at all in your first report, did you? I did not believe it was an artefact, sir. I believed it was a solid black line or dark line going horizontally along that vehicle. Right. But you've changed your mind today. I haven't changed my mind. I've just said I'm more open-minded about it. I am prepared to consider other opinions. Well... I suggest to you that what occurred was that you were definitive because you didn't know about this issue of artefacts? That is not correct. That's why they're not referred to at all in your first report? That is not correct. You have been corrected by someone who has significantly more experience in this area than you? That is incorrect. The Crown's expert on this, Ian Pearson, was a police forensic photographer. He and Horsburgh disagreed on a few other things. For example, an enhancement technique Horsburgh used when examining some of the footage, something called nearest neighbour interpolation. This is an accepted practice, but Pearson, questioned by Hawes, told the court this could be misleading, as it actually added detail to an image. It'll make the images more pleasant to view, because the changes between pixels will be smoother. And that can be relevant when all you need is the general movements or when components in the data is not in question. Does that mean by that method it's making it appear as though there's information that's not actually in the original file itself? 
Yes. Then there was the issue of the black dot. We didn't get into this from the last trial, but the black dot took up a lot of time then and now. The dot in question was in the centre of the wheels of Michael McGrath's car. This car, a 1994 Subaru Legacy station wagon, dark blue, was the crux of the CCTV evidence. We talked about it at length in episode 3, and how the two sides argued themselves to a standstill on whether the car in the footage might be McGrath's. The Crown submitted CCTV footage from several cameras that purported to show this car driving from near McGrath's house, across Horswell, towards Benbow's house on May 22nd, just like the two men had arranged. This would have contradicted Benbow's claim that McGrath never showed up that morning. The black dot was right in the middle of the hubcap. Some CCTV footage of McGrath's car from a few days before he disappeared Don't worry, no one disputed this one was McGrath's car. In that footage, you could see the black dot. On some of the crucial May 22nd footage, Horsburgh pointed out that you couldn't see such a dot. Pearson said this didn't actually mean the dot wasn't there. Because of the size of the vehicle and the frame, he said, any black dot on the wheel would only have filled about one pixel of the image, which would make it hard for the camera to capture the one pixel sized object would have to line up with a pixel on a camera sensor. If it didn't line up perfectly with a sensor, like if it's evenly spaced over four pixels, it would create this sort of image, four gray. And if it was off center, you would get this sort of image on a sensor. I'm saying a black object needs to line up to create a, a distinct black circle in the middle. Pearson's referring to a CCTV image as he talks here and saying this grey area could be a one-pixel-sized black dot that the camera sensor dispersed over four pixels in the image. So he concluded that The lack of visible dark area in the centre of the wheel in the Wall Street footage does not exclude the vehicle in the Wall Street footage belonging to McGrath's vehicle. In cross-examination, Pearson acknowledged the reason he could not see a black dot might simply be because there was no black dot. Like so much of the evidence in this trial, it was far from a certainty. A top-notch piece of journalism. Compelling listening. White silence. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for white silence. the third key area of evidence was electricity. Just to refresh your memory, this centred on showing that Michael McGrath likely was or was not at home after 9am on May 22nd, based on electricity consumption. If a meaningful amount of power was being used after 9, that could suggest McGrath was home and not at Benbow's helping move the railway sleepers or being murdered. You might remember this issue played out in tortuous fashion at the first trial. I won't get into it again here, but basically there was a lot of discussion about how much power was used at McGrath's property that day, exactly when it was used and what that meant. Both sides reached some premature conclusions and had to correct themselves. 
This time, the evidence was a bit more focused. Everyone agreed there were multiple spikes in power use at Michael McGrath's home on May 22nd. Several of these occurred after 9am, i.e. after the Crown alleged McGrath would have left to meet Benbow. In closing at the first trial, the defence had made a big deal of this. Specifically, that two of those power spikes occurred in the morning, but after the Crown said McGrath had left. The Crown had argued that one of these spikes was the hot water cylinder automatically reheating after McGrath presumably used some hot water earlier that morning. But if one of these spikes was the cylinder, the defence said, the other couldn't be. Someone, and the defence said it was McGrath, had to be home after 9am and using power, obliterating the Crown murder theory. This, of course, was an issue for the Crown. They had to account for both spikes. At the retrial, they called a new expert, Andrew Logue, Here's Logue giving his explanation for that second spike. What we're looking at there is very typical for a second reheat for the hot water cylinder after there has been a draw-off event. A second reheat after a draw-off event. To explain what this was and why it mattered, the jury was given a crash course in how hot water cylinders work. Pretty much all cylinders have a heating element at the bottom and a thermostat just above that. That's the most efficient way to control heating and reheating. Left alone, Logue said, a hot water cylinder would reheat itself every 12 or 14 hours. By then, the water temperature would have dropped below a certain level. The thermostat would recognise that, and the element would kick in. What changes this is when you use hot water. Hot water gets drawn from the top of the tank, and this is replaced by cold water at the bottom. The thermostat and the element recognise this, and that triggers some immediate heating. But, Logue said, because it's only a bit of cold water... When the water above the heating element gets up to a temperature that's hot enough for the thermostat to switch off, you're left with some cold water in the bottom, and it's like a heat sink, so it'll actually kind of draw heat energy from the water that sits above. And so what will happen is you'll get another premature... Uh, I shouldn't say premature, but you'll get another heating cycle happen in a much shorter duration after the initial reheat. The theory went that if Michael McGrath used some hot water before he left home on May the 22nd, the first power spike between 9 and 9.30 would be the initial reheat, and the spike around midday would be the second reheat. This was further complicated by the load shedding that was affecting McGrath's property that day, but Logue said... The principle stands. The initial reheat would finish before all the water was actually at the target temperature. It would take some time for the thermostat to register this, and when it did, the second reheat would begin. Logue even ran trials on the hot water cylinder at his office to back this up. In cross-examination from Kirsten Gray, Logue acknowledged this didn't actually prove Michael McGrath wasn't at home. Everything Logue said about the hot water cylinder could be true and McGrath still could have been in the house. If you look at the 9 to 9.30, we know that there's one kilowatt hour used, correct? Correct. So that power usage could all be hot water. Correct. It also could be hot water and a pot on the stove. 
Correct. It could be hot water and a light on. Correct. It also wasn't known how much water would need to be used to trigger reheats of the cylinder at McGrath's house, or when those reheats would happen. Logue initially got the water consumption numbers in his trials wrong. The defence electricity expert was the same as the first trial, Ron Beattie. Beattie said Logue's report was, quote, absolutely fine as it stands, end quote, but came with some limitations because it only considered a day at a time rather than looking at longer trends. It also relied on assumptions, Beatty said, like how that particular cylinder was actually used when, say, McGrath took a shower. Some of the assumptions are how hot was the water that Mr McGrath used because that affects the flow rate through the, the cylinder itself. Um, How long was the shower uh, actually for? Because that affects the total quantity of of water. And what sort of water pressure did Mr McGrath uh, actually like? And so the report, although it it indicates that there is certainly more than one heat cycle actually to heating a, a cylinder, doesn't apply directly to Mr McGrath's house itself. And perhaps most critically, it didn't take into account the characteristics of the cylinder in McGrath's home. It held more water than the one Logue tested on, 180 litres versus 135. We don't know how Mr McGrath's cylinder would actually react, if it would react similarly um, or if it would react uh, differently. Um, The report certainly just points out that there would be more than one heat cycle that would apply to Mr McGrath's cylinder. Um, There was no testing for sensitivity as well, and if we wanted to understand Mr McGrath's consumption, we would need to do that sensitivity test. That is, how much water has to be drawn off to actually trigger the cylinder, and what is the impact of varying flow rates through the cylinder to the reheat cycles as well. Beattie said it was unlikely a cylinder reheat accounted for both spikes on the Monday morning. The main reason for this, he said, came from his analysis of those long-term trends. Michael McGrath was a pretty frugal guy. He didn't use much power for anything, even heating. So when he took a shower, it was quick and, crucially, usually at night. The power use from May the 21st, the day before the alleged murder, showed McGrath likely showered morning and evening. So it was unlikely, Beatty said, that McGrath took another shower on the morning of the 22nd, which then accounted for two spikes in power use from hot water reheating later that same morning. I think it is unlikely uh, that the water heating accounted for both peaks of electricity uh, on the on the 22nd of May. My view is it is not possible for the 9 to 9.30 and 11.30 to 12.30 loads to be only water heating. There would need to be additional load actually mixed with it. Under cross-examination, Beattie acknowledged that if McGrath did shower before 9 on that Monday morning, that could explain the subsequent power spikes so it was possible the power usage supported the Crown murder theory. There was also a fair bit of discussion by both experts about the timing and significance of a third spike in power use on May the 22nd, but this all got pretty dense. The important thing was both cases, the Crown and the Defence, relied on theory. Neither side could use the electricity consumption data to prove that Michael McGrath was or was not at home 
after 9am on May the 22nd. So the cases for and against David Benbow killing Michael McGrath at the retrial were different, but essentially they were the same. When the two sides delivered their closing addresses to the jury, they hit the same notes as last time. Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes again acknowledged the Crown case was circumstantial, that there was no body, no weapon, and no clear crime scene. But he again implored the jury to apply common sense and logic to the evidence. What possible explanation was there for all of it, except that David Benbow killed Michael McGrath? The Crown says that what you'll be left with is the single reasonable explanation for the disappearance of Michael McGrath, and that is that the defendant, David Benbow, murdered him at 43 Candies Road on 22 May 2017. This is a conclusion that's to be reached logically and as a result of considering all the evidence that you've heard in the course of this trial. The number of different pieces of evidence which add up against Mr Benbow to implicate him and prove his guilt are either just that, evidence which proves his guilt, or Mr Benbow is the victim of the most unlikely and unlucky set of circumstances and coincidences. Ultimately, Hawes said, the case came down to human nature, that of Michael McGrath and of David Benbow. Did McGrath really disappear of his own accord? Michael McGrath was not the sort of person, as you heard, to simply walk away from his life, from his family, from his friends, from everything that he'd ever known. He did not have a double life that no one was aware of. He saw his friends on Saturdays at the pub. He saw his mother and brother for dinner on Tuesdays. And he lived quietly and relatively simply in a house he was slowly renovating on Checkers Avenue in Horsville. In response, the defence basically used the Crown's argument against it. The application of common sense and logic did not amount to a case proven beyond reasonable doubt. At the second trial, lead counsel Kirsten Gray framed this in a way the defence hadn't at the first trial. Red flag evidence. Red flag evidence. Hearing a lot of evidence about how and why there wasn't that much evidence, that was red flag evidence. A bunch of Stephen Robinson's co-workers at Littleton Port who added nothing to the question of exactly when Robinson left? Red flag evidence. The black dot that might still be on the hubcap even though you can't see it? Red flag evidence. The Crown claiming no forensic evidence of a murder being found at David Benbow's property didn't mean a murder didn't still happen there? Red flag. You've heard days and days, if not weeks, of evidence explaining an absence of evidence, why there is no evidence that Mr Benbow committed a murder. That is not proof beyond reasonable doubt. That is red flag evidence. In the absence of actual evidence, Gray said, the police were sucked in by a theory. A theory that was handed to them by an imperfect source with an axe to grind. David Benbow's former partner, Joanna Green. 
Green had not long left Benbow and started a new relationship with Michael McGrath when McGrath disappeared. She was the one who reported him missing, and she made it more than clear to police that she thought her ex was behind it. What should be abundantly clear to you is that this is a case based entirely on a theory. A theory that was first thought up by Joanna Green. The theory that Mr Bembo had done something to Mr McGrath. And it's a theory that is desperately searching for evidence. The final act of a trial, other than the verdict, is for the judge to sum up the case and instruct the jury. Good morning, uh, Mr. Fourperson, members of the jury. I'm now going to sum up the case for you. And I begin my summing up by extending my thanks to you on behalf of the community. It might seem like a box-ticking exercise, but it's really important. The jury gets an impartial summary of the evidence and the judge can direct them on what things are important or irrelevant and the steps they need to work through to reach a verdict. They get something called a question trail to guide them through the evidence. Question one on Benbo was... Has the Crown made you sure that Michael McGrath is dead? So that reflects uh, the onus and standard of proof. Some of it can get quite detailed. A judge might say, in order for you to conclude X, you must already be convinced of Y and Z. That sort of thing. The Benbow jury didn't get anything that prescriptive, but Justice Eaton did remind them of the interconnectedness of the evidence. If they decided one part of the Crown murder theory didn't stack up, that could affect the entire case. Take the electricity evidence, for example. The evidence is important, however, because if you accept Mr Beatty's opinion and conclude that Mr McGrath may well have been at his property using electricity after 9am, then he could not have been at Candy's Road. That would mean the Whale Street footage could not be recording him driving towards Candy's Road, and Mr Robinson's observation of whatever he saw could not have been of Mr McGrath and Mr Bembo. Justice Eaton dwelled on Stephen Robinson's evidence in particular, its changing nature, the time-lapse, and ultimately, its reliability. What you might think is that Mr Robinson is a relatively simple man who's found himself very much caught up giving what is considered by both sides to be very important evidence in a murder trial involving people he's never met, let alone anything to do with. And I don't think there could be any doubt that when he first approached the police, he did so simply offering information he thought may or may not be of importance. But his evidence is important. Ultimately, as with all the evidence, it's evidence for you to consider and decide, having regard to the warnings I've given whether you accept Mr Robinson to be reliable. And so, for the second time in six months, a jury of David Benbow's peers retired to consider his fate. Members of the jury, will you please retire to consider your verdict?
You've been listening to The Trial from Stuff, New Zealand's home of true crime podcasts. It was scripted and produced by me, Michael Wright, from the Press Newsroom in Christchurch. Sound design, audio editing and mixing was by Connor Scott. The associate producer was Jen Black, consulting producer Adam Dudding and executive producer Chris Reed. Thanks to Kamala Heyman, Martin Van Bainen and Jake Kenny from the press. You can listen to the full series via Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow the show and consider leaving a review recommending it to other people. For more great true crime listening, go to stuff.co.nz slash podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Trial. A man disappears and a woman goes to prison for 15 years for his murder, despite swearing she'd never even met him. Gone Fishing. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Gone Fishing. A man disappears with no crime scene, no weapon and no body. How could his longtime friend be arrested and charged with murder? The Trial. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Trial.